Now, as already has been mentioned, what we will do tonight is take an overview, sort of a, a flyover of this last third of the Gospel of Mark. Now, Sunday, we're going to get back into the last week of Jesus' life, and you will receive our third and final Mark journal this Sunday. Now, just by way of just reminder, most of you, I think, have participated, or at least you're familiar with these. This is just a daily reader. It walks through the four Gospels. I know it says Mark on the cover. That's because that's the series we're going through. But we've basically worked out the life and ministry of Jesus as best we can in chronological order using all four Gospels. So there's daily readings in here. There's a space to take notes on the weekends. Uh, there's even a place, if you wish to, to take notes on our Wednesday gatherings. Whether or not it relates to the teaching of that Sunday, you'll have space to do that. And if you are in a small group, a community group, which we believe in so much here at Clear Creek, there's space for you to be able to interact with your group, with the stuff in here. So I want to encourage you to be here Sunday to receive your copy. And uh, if there are extras after the first week or so, we'd invite you to pick up an extra one, give it to a friend. Uh, it's a great gift and opportunity to be able to invite them to come and be part of the gathering here. Now, I want to start with this question. So put on your thinking hats for a moment. This is, this is going to be a tough one. All right, here's the question. If I were to ask you tonight, what are you doing this week? So now here's the thing. If I were to ask you, what are you doing this week? Most of us could give uh, maybe one, two, three, four. I, I don't know. Maybe you're really organized. And you could give your list of to-dos. If you're like me, what I do, and this is just the way I'm wired. If you're not this way, it's okay. But every night before I leave the office, I sit down and I write out my to-do list for the next day because I want to hit the ground running the next morning. Uh, I have too many things to do, I feel like, and so I always need to organize. And So I could give you some of the things, but not for the full week necessarily. And even if we gave our lists, how many of us would say, you know, this is what I think I'm doing, but I don't know that I'm doing these things. For example, I think I'm going to stain my deck, but if the good Lord should turn the heat up to like volcanic heat levels, I may not be staining my deck this week. Either that or I may be going to the hospital afterwards for heat stroke, right? And so we think we know what we're doing, we have ideas of what we're doing, we organize for what we're doing. And then some of us, how many of us would say, you know, uh, there's some things I'm doing, but, but if I were to say, why are you doing this? We'd say, well, you know, it's sort of for this reason, or you know, maybe it's because it's sort of a have to. I just got to do it. It's a honey-do list. It's a this, it's a that, and those are all good things. But if I asked you, how will doing what you do this week change your life or the life of someone else? If you're like me, and I've had all week to think about this answer, I struggle. Now, now again, some of you can say, oh, yeah, but you're the preacher. You get, you get like an automatic buy every Sunday. Yes, I am changing. No. So here's what's so interesting to me, though. If we were to come to Jesus, I think at any point in his ministry, and especially as we come to this last week of his ministry, and you were to say to Jesus, hey, Jesus, What's your to-do list? I think he'd say, you got a few minutes? Here's my to-do list. And I think 
And it's not just because he's God in a bod, not just because he's the human form of God, but because he knew what he was doing here, he would say, this is what I'm doing. And then if we were to ask the more important question, Jesus, tell me why you're doing it. I think he would be able to say without hesitation or consideration, here's why I'm doing it. And then if we were to ask the question, Jesus, will what you do this week impact for the better yourself or other people? He'd be able to say, I think so, just a little bit. And so what I want to do tonight is I want to walk you through the life, these last few days of Jesus' life, and then I want to dive into what I think are some maybe observations and perhaps applications, because here's the reality. If you've put Jesus Christ on in baptism, that was not, listen to me here, please, when you gave your life to Jesus, that was not simply fire insurance. How many of us maybe heard or grew up or have heard someone else talk about salvation primarily as fire insurance? Well, you know, for instance, here was a, here's the sales pitch I heard at my grandmother's church growing up. There was an older gentleman who was a member of the church, a good man. He loved Jesus, but his sales pitch needed work. It was this. Johnny, or in this case, Josh, do you love Jesus? Yes, I love Jesus. Do you want to spend eternity with Jesus in heaven, or do you want to burn in hell forever separated from mommy and daddy? Well, at the tender age of six, what do you think my answer is going to be? Sign me up for the fire insurance. I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to burn. Now listen, salvation, yes, you do not go to hell. Amen to that. That's a good thing, isn't it? But hear me, your job, your role when you come to faith in Jesus Christ is not simply to avoid going to hell. You are now enlisted in the mission of God Almighty and you have been called into a present activity that is far bigger and grander. But here's the reality. I think some of us shortchange our lives because we don't know why we're here. We think we're here for what's beyond here. And so we're going to go through that. So here we go. I want to walk you through seven days real quickly. We're just going to kind of do high points and go from there. But here's the way this works. We're going to do it over you. Passion week, that word passion. Uh, when we hear the word passion, passion week refers to the last week of Jesus' life. When we hear the word passion, what is it that we most likely think of? What do you think of when you hear the word passion? Romantic, yeah. You know, you, you think of soft-focused lenses, smooth music, a nice breeze, right? You think of this. I don't know why a breeze is romantic to me, but I feel hot right now, so maybe that's why. It just sounds awesome. But the word passion, and as it was originally understood, meant something completely different. In fact, it referenced and meant suffering. What's interesting is the Bible is going to say that this passion week of Jesus, the suffering week of Jesus, is actually bore out of his love, not only for us, but for God Almighty. And so over these seven days, Jesus marches very clearly towards a predetermined destination. Now, one of the interesting things is Passion Week is one of the two most important weeks recorded in Scripture. It is one of the two most important weeks recorded in Scripture. What do you think the other important seven-day period wink, wink, nudge, nudge, recorded in Scripture is? 
creation. Now, we're not going to discuss uh, whether that's literal seven days with 24 hours in each of them. That doesn't matter. Here's the bigger point. I don't want you to miss this. What we see beginning in creation, we see happening again in the seven days of Jesus' Passion Week. So let's just begin on Sunday. And I put it up here if you can see. I'm sorry, there's a lot of content, so it's real small. But up here, you begin. What is the very first day of the week, church? Sunday. So what's the very first day of Passion Week? Palm Sunday. Jesus begins the final week by entering in the ancient holy city of Jerusalem, the capital city of the Hebrew people, first established by King David, the great king of the Jewish people. He comes into Yerushalem. Jerusalem comes from two Hebrew words, Yara, which means city or foundation, and Shalem, which is the root of Shalom, which means peace completion to make whole. He is entering into the city of peace, the city of wholeness. Now, what's interesting to me is the city was anything but complete, whole, or peaceful for a number of reasons. Number one, and most obvious, the people of Israel were under the boot heel of Rome. They did not have peace. It would be weird to say that my life is whole, it is complete, and yet have an area of it that is still disordered, disarray, not in form. And so Jesus enters into a city of peace, and yet it is a peace or a city without peace. He comes in, not only is it socially and politically without peace, but it's also religiously without peace. You have different factions fighting for control and dominance, and there are those who are out to get Jesus himself, but Jesus comes in. Isaiah calls him the Prince of Peace, and he begins by entering the city of peace to establish order for the kingdom of God. One of the pictures we give is we're told that he doesn't just come into the city, but do you recall what Jesus rides? What is it that he chooses as his vehicle of choice entering into the city of peace? A donkey. By the way, if you want to take notes or take a picture later, what you'll see, here's the text that breaks down the days in the chapters, and here are messianic prophecies. You say, why does that matter? Here's why. We're going to see throughout these seven days the prophetic promises. This is who Messiah, the chosen one of God, will be. Certain things must be in place, and one of those is from Zechariah chapter 9, where we're told that the king to come, the Messiah, will come in riding on a donkey. Now, this is very unusual because a military leader, a Messiah, a liberator would come in on a horse because a horse was the symbol of strength, of power, of might, of dominance. And yet Jesus Christ, the most powerful person to ever live. You remember he, he said, I could call down 10,000, what was it? Angels. Hey, listen, I have friends I can call if I need help, but I don't have any one angel on my speed dial, except for my wife. Point, okay? He says he can call down how many? 10,000 angels. He has all the power. He can call on the hosts of heaven at any point, and yet he does not come in flexing his muscles. He comes in on a symbol of 
peace, of humility, of self-sacrifice and service. Here's the first thing that I see is Jesus is so confident in who he is, he doesn't feel like he has to show off. Have you noticed that the people who seem to show off the most are those who have the most to prove? Who don't feel like they know who they are? And so Jesus is reenacting, and I want you to see this on big screen in your mind. In Genesis 1, it begins, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was, do you remember the phrase? Formless and what? Void. Tohu vavohu, which means chaotic. And we're told in verse 2 that the Holy Spirit of God hovers over the waters of the deep of this chaotic, unformed world. And the Spirit of God, when God draws near, He begins to bring order into from, from the chaotic thing. He brings order into it. He is completing it. Peace is coming, and Jesus is now beginning to do what God did in the beginning. And Jesus comes, the people celebrate, they sing out this phrase. Do you remember the word they called out to Jesus? Hosanna. Anyone know what that means? Praise? Yeah? What, what else? Give me some other words. Save? Yeah. And, but, but it wasn't like a request. It wasn't like, save. It was a, it was a declaration and a statement almost like a command. It was, save now. Save us now. The people are dying for salvation. And they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Interestingly enough, they think salvation comes with a sword, but Jesus comes with a donkey. Isn't it interesting, sometimes we find salvation in things that just can't save us. We put so much stock in our political system. And by the way, if you don't vote, I hope you will. Take advantage of the system we've been given and are so grateful for. But at the end of the day, Jesus is the only one who can save a people. Amen? Religious leaders can't stand this, so they begin to plot. They get angry. We move from Palm Sunday. Jesus goes, he looks at the temple on Palm, or on Palm Sunday, but it's late, so he goes home. He comes back Monday. He comes to a fig tree. You remember this? He's hungry. He gets hangry. It's a whole thing. He goes then to the temple in Jerusalem, and he begins to, to demonstrate his inner Hulk. But it comes... How many of you remember... Okay, not like the new Hulk, but the Lou Ferrigno, 1970s. Okay, thank you. How many hours must that guy have spent getting painted green for those scenes for the TV show The Hulk? But he gets mad, he rips his clothes, and he starts going crazy. This is what, okay, okay, overactive imagination. I know Jesus did not turn green or anything. But this is the picture I get. Jesus goes in, and he begins to clear out the temple. And the reason he does it is because the money changers, those who are there, who were needed to be there, to take the money that people would bring to sell these people a sacrificial animal so they could make sacrifice in the temple, they were the money changers were charging exorbitant fees, taking advantage of people in the service of God, meaning using their position for themselves, not for other people. We're going to get into a whole lot more of that this coming Sunday. But Jesus does not like this. And so Jesus goes in and begins to clean house. In fact, in the Gospel of John, we're told that his followers remember the words that Jesus would be living out that he had zeal 
before his father's house. This was another messianic prophecy from Psalm 69, 9. Jesus cleans house. Remember, he's bringing peace, but there can be no peace if there's disorder in any part of life. So Jesus clears it out. This is a direct assault on the religious leaders because he is not simply coming to their city. He's coming to their place of business, their place of power and influence. And he's saying, your way of doing things is wrong. It is a defilement before God. And they say, we've got to get rid of this guy. And so they begin to plot. That's Monday. We get in now to Tuesday. Historically, Tuesday is called Busy Tuesday. You say, why is it called Busy? Because there's a lot of stuff Jesus does. If you want to follow the path of this, this is the latter half of chapter 11 through 13. And what you're going to see if you read this section is a repeated assault on Jesus' authority, Jesus' intellect, Jesus' uh, uh, character, but Jesus consistently deals well with the people who attack him. So it begins the second half of chapter 11. We'll get into this Sunday, so I'm not going to dive in now, but they question him. Where do you get authority to do what you're doing, Jesus? You just cleared house. Who said you could do that? And then Jesus tells a parable, by the way, this is a fulfillment of another messianic prophecy, Psalm 78, 2, that says that the Messiah will come teaching in parables. And Jesus says, let me tell you a parable. And Josh isn't going to tell you right now because he's going to tell you on Sunday. They don't like the parable. That's the bottom line, though. After that, it was the chief priests and the teachers of the law, the scribes, basically the preachers and the scholars. Those are the ones who attack him first. When they don't get any traction... They then grab the Pharisees. Now, these are, these are like the religious elites. And they say, hey, you, you go do it. You, you go take care of it. And then the Pharisees, and I'm not sure how this happened, but they go not just by themselves, but they go with another group. This is chapter 12. They go with a group called the Herodians. And this is the weirdest combination in Scripture in my mind. So you have the Pharisees. Let me give you a political example for, for those of us in this room. Just kind of grab your attention. So, um, and I'm not saying good or bad, okay? This is just, just kind of think of it. Politically speaking, the Pharisees would be considered the far right politically. They would be the Tea Party movement. And I don't mean far right in a bad way here. I'm just I'm trying to give you a picture, okay? They were the ones who were uh, conservative they were the ones who adhered to the Mosaic Law. They upheld it. Their belief, and, I, and there was value to this, their belief was that because of our idolatry, we went into exile as a people in the Old Testament. And if we will be faithful, God will restore us. So they are fulfilling, obeying the Old Testament law. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, and when I say other end, I mean like out the door and through the woods to grandmother's house, are the Herodians. Now, let me give you a hint. You can kind of figure out what their role is by their name. They were the Herodians. The Herodians. Anyone catching their, their... Okay. These were the Hebrew people who instead of leaning into the Torah, the law of God, had run towards political, social... Our power is with Rome. It's with Herod. And yet somehow because of their hatred for Jesus... By the way, don't ever underestimate the hatred people will have for the gospel to the point that even though they're complete enemies, they will become friends to face down the gospel. So the Pharisees and the Herodians come to Jesus. They then question him. Jesus answers their, their question brilliantly. I'm not going to tell you what it is because in two weeks we're going to talk about it, okay? But after that, then the Sadducees. And I remember, how many of you remember 
in VBS, the song, I don't want to be, I just want to be a sheep, ba, 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 ba. All right, so um, <laughs> we'll have Christian karaoke next Wednesday night. Bring your singing voice. I was going to say, my favorite verse was always, I don't want to be a Sadducee. I don't want to be a Sadducee because they're so sad, you see. I was five. I don't want to be a Sadducee. Okay, the Sadducees come. They're yet another group of religious leaders. This is still in chapter 12. And they come, and they don't believe in the resurrection, so they ask Jesus this hypothetical question, and again, Jesus blows them out of the water. And what you see is they keep sending people to try to trick and trap him because they want a legal basis for getting him killed. They don't care about the truth. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but have you ever known someone whose desire in knowing the Scriptures was more for ammunition against others than to come under the authority and love of God themselves. And so we see it in 3D right here. There's a few other stories, interactions. Jesus in chapter 13 gives this long explanation of the end times. Don't worry, we're going to teach on that as best we can in a few weeks as well. This is Busy Tuesday, and so after a Busy Tuesday, Jesus, he kind of takes it easy, and we come to what is called Silent Wednesday. Silent Wednesday is known for the fact that Jesus doesn't say anything according to the Mark and Gospel. He goes, he's, or he says very little, I should say. He, he is anointed in a nearby town of Bethany by a woman whose life is changed by his ministry. And this is one of the places that we get a clear glimpse in the Markan account that there's one within Jesus' inner circle, a man named Judas, who because of Jesus' thinking and compassion for others and use of money, he just doesn't like the fact that he is now seeing his role, his, his Messiah, who he thought was going to bring him, Judas, acclaim and position because of Jesus and what he was going to do or what he thought he was going to do, Judas says, I'm out, and he begins to plot with the religious leaders, and he accepts what? Do you guys remember what he accepts? 30 coins. Do you remember what kind of coins even? Silver. By the way, if you want to have some fun later this week, go look up that messianic prophecy from Zechariah 11, 12, and 13. It, we'll come back if you're interested in these even reading them, there's more to these, but it prophesies that there will that the payment for the one will be thirty pieces of silver. After Wednesday, the scene changes, and and if you can almost think of the full week as almost like just one day, you have the sunrise with Palm Sunday, you have the heat of the day with Jesus's high-impact conversations. You then see him taking his mid-afternoon siesta on Silent Wednesday, and then come Thursday, it's beginning to get dark in the week for Jesus. And, and Thursday is known as Maundy Thursday or Maudi Thursday. Both pronunciations are okay. It comes from a Latin word that means commandment because it's on this day that Jesus gathers with his friends in that room. He takes bread, takes wine, and he says, I have longed to have this meal with you. And I want you to think for just a moment 
Jesus is speaking, yes, as a man who for 33-ish years has been coming to this point. And so, yes, of course, he longed for this moment, but, but he wasn't just a man, was he? He is the God who's there at the beginning. He is the God who set up the Mosaic covenant, the Moses covenant with the sacrificial system. He is the God who is there the night that the angel of death passed over in Egypt and spared the firstborn son at the sacrifice of a perfect, blemishless animal. He is the God who set everything into motion. So I wonder if when he said, I have longed to eat this meal with you, if he was not also thinking, I have waited thousands of years for this moment. This is the moment. And he takes bread according to the Gospels. He breaks it and he says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood taking the cup. Drink this. Remember me. And then, according to John chapter 13, Jesus does something that the greatest should never do. He takes off his outer garment, he puts on a towel, and he gets down with a basin of water, and he begins to wash feet. And then he says something to his followers. He says, and I'm paraphrasing, I'm doing this for you. You do this for each other. If you are mine, if you look like me, if you live like me, if your DNA has been rewritten by the gospel, been washed in my life, then you do this as well. He gives them a commandment and he says, this isn't a commandment that takes, but if you do this, oh, you will be blessed if you serve one another. After the meal, Jesus takes the 11 remaining apostles because as you recall, during the meal, one of them, Judas, gets up and he begins the betrayal process. He goes to the religious leaders. He says, I know where he's going to be. I know that he's going to be alone. You don't have to be afraid of the crowds. They won't be around. You can get them. And so Jesus and his remaining 11 they leave the upper room. They exit the city of Jerusalem out the east gate, most likely, down through the Kidron Valley and up into the Mount of Olives to this beautiful little spot called the Garden of Gethsemane. This is an area that to this day, if you go, it's all very close from the garden. You can see the beauty of Jerusalem and at night, even then with the firelight just twinkling there. And in the garden that evening, he begins to pray. We're told he doesn't just pray, though. He begins to sweat. Do you, do you remember what? Blood. And he says, oh, Father, if there's any way possible, will you take this cup from me? But not my will. Yours be done. And God, finally, after he prays and prays, God sends an angel, angel, anglos, which just means a, 
a messenger or a ministering spirit. And, and he comes and he ministers to Jesus. And about that time, Jesus wakes his followers up and says, it's time, the hour is near, it's here. And right over the crest of the hill, he sees the torchlight of soldiers. And in the front is Judas who comes and kisses Jesus. And we're told that Jesus would be betrayed by a friend. The Messiah. He then is taken to courts. This was a kangaroo court, which simply means that it was a farce. He's taken before the Sanhedrin. It was against Jewish law to do a secret trial at night, and yet when do they do it? At night, in secret. They pay people to come and speak against Jesus because they don't have any legit cause for the trial. And when he speaks in such a way that they believe to be blasphemy or, or speaking against God in a way that's inappropriate, they say, we don't need to hear anything else. He is doomed. And they begin to beat him and spit on him. They pluck out his beard. This again, fulfilling another Old Testament prophecy that Messiah would be physically abused early in the next morning. By the way, one of the things you'll notice through these chapters is the, is the time break early the next morning, the next day, later in the day, and it'll talk and so you can see and course your time through these. We come now to Good Friday, which on the surface is anything but good, but it is good for what reason, church? It's good for us, isn't it? What's the phrase? Freedom is not free. Salvation is not free, but it's free to me. Amen? He paid a price. I didn't. He goes before Pilate now because although the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council says he must die, they have no legal right to execute him. That's Rome's purview. So they send him to Pilate, the governor of the area of Judea under Rome. And to him, they say he must die. Pilate interviews him. And Jesus, according to a messianic prophecy, speaks nothing. He says, I am. It is I. Yes. That's it. And Pilate is surprised. He goes, don't you want to defend yourself against their accusations? And he says nothing, fulfilling the, the messianic prophecy of Isaiah 53, 7 through 12. You then have the execution. We're told, and I, I did not put them up here. I can give them to you later. But if you go to Psalm 22, you have messianic prophecy after messianic prophecy after messianic prophecy that well, that he would be pierced, that he would be abused, that, he would, uh, that, that no bones would be broken. And that moment when Christ on the cross on Good Friday in the afternoon cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is quoting Psalm 22. And then he dies. He's laid in a borrowed tomb, and the reason it's borrowed, the reason he didn't own it, is because he's not going to be there very long. And then you come to Saturday, which in the church's history calls it Holy Saturday. This is the day of rest. Interesting. We began with creation. What happens on the seventh day of creation? God rests from his work, doesn't he? Isn't it interesting, the last thing Christ says on the cross, three words in the English language, it is finished. He rests from his work. He's done on Saturday. This is the story of his last week. You say, yeah, but what about Easter? That's the best part. I know. I just want you to come back near the end of the series. 
But here's what I want you to take away from this. Let's go back to our first question. What are you doing this week? And, and, and how do you prioritize what you do? Here's what I think is so incredible about Jesus. If you kind of take this entire week and just sort of map it out, here are a few things I notice. The number one thing I see is that Jesus moves so quickly and so purposefully because here's the key idea that I think, and maybe you'll come with something else, but let me give you my big idea. Jesus had clarity. He knew why he was here. He knew the moment he stepped foot into three-dimensional human space, he knew what his purpose was for. He didn't have to question it. He didn't have to wonder about it. And because he knew why he was here, he operated with decisive action. Here's the beautiful thing about clarity. You remember the Old Testament passage, the people perish without vision. That without clarity or a sense of this is why I'm here, this is what I'm here to do, people don't just perish, but we're told from that same passage, they actually throw off or cast off what? Do you remember? Restraint. We'll just kind of go there. That it's not just that they need clarity for life, it's that the things that give us definition, the things that keep us from falling apart, we get rid of. Jesus Christ himself knew exactly why he was here. And so from start to finish, he walked with purpose because he had clarity. Here's the thing, he had clarity because, let me give you the right word here. I've spent a lot of time looking up C words, so I'm not going to blow it now. came from his conviction of who he was. Do you remember the first event? I'm taking you all the way back to the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. The first event before Jesus' ministry begins. What is the first thing he does before he enters into public ministry? He is baptized. What happens in that baptism, church? What three things? Do you remember what they are? Get, give me one of them. What do you got? What's that? Uh, in his baptism? Yeah, okay. Yeah, there you go. Right. It's symbolic of his death, burial, resurrection. Absolutely. That's great. What else do we see happening in the baptism of Jesus? Holy Spirit comes. What is another thing that happens? God speaks. That's great. What's another thing? Do you remember the third thing? Heaven's opened up. You have three things that happen in that moment. Heaven is opened up. The thing that demonstrates the separation between where God is and where we are is now rend asunder. By the way, interestingly enough, what happened when Jesus was on the cross? The temple curtain was torn in two. The space of God and the space of man, there is now no separation because of Jesus. Sky opens. Holy Spirit comes the seal, Paul calls the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 1. He is the seal, the proof, the promise that you are in Christ Jesus. You are God's kid. And then the voice of God speaks. And do you remember what God calls Jesus? Do you remember this phrase? This is my, in whom I am well pleased. Another word is, he is my beloved son. I love him. He is my boy. He had conviction of who he was because he heard the voice of God saying, this is who you are. And so he then lived 
every moment of his ministry with clarity, I am the Son of God. I have been given a mission. The Holy Spirit, although I am God in a bod, the Holy Spirit will empower me, lead me, show me. We talked about this weeks back that the Holy Spirit led Jesus, helped Jesus, showed Jesus how to do things, that he allowed himself to be led by the Spirit. In fact, first thing he does after his baptism, we're told that he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And he heard God's voice say, this is my boy. And because he knew who he was, because of that moment, I believe more than any other moment, he had clarity of what he was here to do. So here's a few things. Do you notice that clarity brings some very important things? Number one, Clarity brings courage. When you know why you're here, when you have conviction that you are the child of God, it doesn't matter what anyone else says about you or to you. Amen? I mean, who cares? I mean, who cares? I remember many, many times growing up, um, I, there would be moments where people were just mean. By the way, I think life should be lived in reverse, like be an old person first and then get younger. I would love that. I would redo things in a heartbeat as a younger person. Kids are mean. Have you noticed this sometimes? They just do things that are spiteful. There would be a number of times I'd have some kid who'd make some comment to me. I remember one kid, we got into a cut-down war, which is a dumb thing to do. I, I was young. I was only 25. And so... <laughs> This kid said, I mean, like his big coup de gras, his big cut down was, oh yeah, well, you're a bald eagle. And when you're, okay, I was more like six or seven. When you're that age, it's like, wow, that was an amazing, what can I say in response to that brilliance? And I remember feeling so crushed, and I went home, and I was crying because some kid had called me a bald eagle, and I, I, I was a weak kid, and so my dad, I remember, he sat me down, and he said, son, who loves you? I said, well, you love me. He said, well, then who cares what anyone else thinks about you? When your daddy says, you're my kid, and I love you, and I literally moved heaven and hell for you, then it gives you the courage to face opposition. And here's the other thing about conviction. You will face opposition. If you want another C word, you will have conflict if you have clarity from the convictions that God has given you. There will be people who do not like you for what you stand for. And by the way, church, we are increasingly entering a post-Christian world. What that means is before the church, the church, and now we're coming to a season where most Americans, even if they claim to be religious on some level, are living as though what they say they believe does not matter. You, if you truly walk with Jesus with conviction and clarity, you will have conflict. But you will have courage in the conflict because you know who you are and whose you are. The other thing that I see is not only the courage, because he goes into a temple, he knows what he's doing, and he knows that by doing that, clearing the temple on Sunday, he is setting up events to ensure his death on Friday. And he had the courage to do it. He knew the conflict he was going to face when he stepped into that arena, but he did it. And then, interestingly enough, not only does he have courage, not only does he have this willingness to enter into conflict. By the way, I wish Christians would be more willing to enter into the necessary conflict. Most of us fight unnecessary conflict, don't we? Facebook does not matter. Please hear me. The post from that guy you know does not matter. That's unnecessary conflict. 
the conversation with your child or your friend or asking someone about their priorities, that is necessary conflict because eternity hangs in the balance there. So another thing I see is simply this. Jesus, because of his clarity, he would not tolerate compromise for himself or for others. So in the temple, he won't allow people to be abused or to abuse. He calls those who would call God Father to a higher level. When you know who you are and when you have clarity of your purpose, then you do not tolerate compromise in your life. I want to say something, uh, and again, I hope this doesn't apply to anyone in this room, but statistically it does. There are too many Christians who are living double lives by the way they're behaving behind closed doors and the way they're behaving on Sundays. But to follow Jesus Christ means that you step away from the compromise of life. That you just do not tolerate it. You say, I know who I am, and that's not who I am. One of the things we tell our children before they go to school almost every day, we'll say, I'll say to Stephen in particular, I'll say, Stephen, remember two things. Remember that you are a Diggs man. You represent the family. And he goes, yes, sir, Daddy, I'm a Diggs man. I say, but here's the more important one. If you were not a part of the Diggs family, that would still not matter because you are a part of God's family. You represent Jesus today. So you do not live with compromise. Jesus, because he knew who he was, because of the clarity, because of his conviction, he moved with purpose, and he did not compromise, nor would he allow others to compromise. I think about even with all of the messianic prophecies, there were easier ways to get to where he was going, but he would not compromise from the mission of God set forth in the Old Testament, did he? No, I'll fulfill it the way. And the final thing is simply this. I think it's so interesting that in the middle of all this, he is constantly with those who matter most, meaning that because of clarity, he was able to reorganize his commitments. I mean, he is with his 12 the entire week. The whole week. Now, Judas drops off at the end, but he's with the rest of them from start to finish. Everything he does, they're with him. And he even takes time to have R&R on Wednesday. And then on Thursday, you say, Jesus, don't you have more important things to do? He says, no. These are the ones who will carry on the legacy and the mission for centuries to come through their work. I was talking to Evan earlier today, and he shared an interesting stat with me. And if I heard him correctly, he said, Josh, there is statistically when it comes to children who want to play professional ball, you know, they start off in little leagues and all the things like that. I mean, big deal. And by the way, I mean, that, that, is, that is a serious thing around here. Uh, have you guys noticed this? Holy smoke. I mean, I was out of the ball field the other day. There was a kid who couldn't have been more than four years old. I mean, he's shooting up. He's getting his st steroids. Uh, not quite, but I mean, it's, I mean it's, it's pretty intense. But he said, Josh, statistically speaking, any kid who gets into sports has, get this now, chance of getting into the major leagues, playing pro ball, they have a point zero zero one percent chance of playing pro. Point zero zero one percent chance. Now, and then he said, now let me give you another stat. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 60% of all young men who by the time they're 16 years old will be addicted to pornography. Now question, church, of the two, what do we tend to focus our time on more as parents? 
getting our kids to the ball field, making sure they've got the great coaches, making sure they have all the right stuff. And I'm, there's nothing wrong with that. Please don't hear me say that. But the priorities are baseball versus character. This is, and hear me now, there's nothing wrong with sports. I love sports. I can't play them, so I watch them, but I love them, okay? But Jesus Christ, because he knew what was important, he spoke about what was important, and he did not let the trivial things of this world dictate what he did. So let me go back to the first question. Are you ready? If you know who you are, and by the way, when you were saved, although you did not hear it with your ears, all of heaven screamed at the shout of your daddy God saying, this is my boy, this is my girl, I love him. If that's who you are, what are you doing this week? What are you doing this week? Are you moving with clarity for the purpose that God has set out for you? And if you're like me, you may be feeling guilty. Don't feel guilty. That's not the point. Points go, ah, oh, I have a purpose. And maybe the next step is simply say, God, what is it? What is it? What does it look like for me to walk with clarity over this next week so that regardless of when my death comes, I get to confidently step towards you into eternity knowing that I moved with clarity because of who I was, because of who you said I was.